0: I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Anxiety and depression have skyrocketed during the pandemic. What are the latest developments in treating these conditions? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon.
1: Conventional treatment for depression includes familiar drugs like Prozac or Cymbalta. However, for some people, these medications have undesirable side effects. For others, they're not very effective. What else can people do?
0: Two of the country's most distinguished psychiatrists will share their insights on alternate approaches. How effective are drugs like ketamine or psychedelics such as psilocybin?
1: Non-drug approaches can help some people. What are they?
0: Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, get an update on overcoming depression.
1: In The People's Pharmacy health headlines, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 swept through many states at the beginning of this year. Even people who were vaccinated or who had previously recovered from COVID were not immune to infection. Now, Dr. Eric Topol explains, things could get worse. Dr. Topol has been tracking COVID since the very beginning of the pandemic. He's founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute and an expert on medical innovation. The coronavirus has evolved into a new variant of Omicron called BA five. It's rapidly becoming the dominant variant in the U.S., and it's able to evade our immune response to previous versions. It has major differences in the spike protein. In addition, there are other mutations that help BA.5 outcompete previous variants. That's why so many people are catching COVID, even though they're vaccinated and boosted. Dr. Topol recognizes that people are weary of mitigation measures. Nonetheless, to reduce the impact of BA5, he recommends high quality masks along with excellent ventilation and air filtration.
0: The CDC has activated its Emergency Operations Center to deal with the rapid spread of monkeypox. It will also coordinate an expanded vaccination strategy. Over the next few weeks, 300,000 doses of the monkeypox vaccine will be made available. By the end of the year, well over a million doses will have been distributed. Public health authorities suspect that there are many more cases than have been identified because testing is not readily available.
1: Investigators have analyzed data collected as part of the Framingham Heart Study Offspring Cohort. There were nearly 2,000 participants. These individuals completed detailed dietary questionnaires that were scored according to how closely they conformed to dietary approaches to stop hypertension, or DASH, recommendations. In addition, blood samples were drawn and analyzed for three different epigenetic markers of aging. People who had higher DASH scores had lower levels of each of these aging biomarkers. The researchers suggest that this may help explain why a healthful diet with lots of produce and very little processed food is associated with a longer lifespan.
0: Poor sleep is associated with hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, impaired immunity, and obesity. Can strategies to increase sleeping time make a difference for weight control? Researchers conducted a randomized trial to see whether improving sleep duration could impact calorie intake. The volunteers were overweight and normally slept less than six and a half hours a night. One half were provided sleep hygiene counseling aimed at extending their sleep duration. After two weeks, the intervention group improved sleep time by 1.2 hours. They also consumed fewer calories. The investigators concluded that Improving and maintaining healthy sleep duration over longer periods could be part of obesity prevention and weight loss programs.
1: Tart cherries are rich in polyphenol compounds with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory activity. To find out if they might have cognitive benefits, scientists recruited 50 healthy middle-aged volunteers. These individuals went through a comprehensive, computerized battery of cognitive tests before the investigators assigned them to consume 30 milliliters of Montmorency cherry concentrate, or a lookalike placebo, twice daily for three months. They took tests designed to examine the same cognitive capabilities at the close of the study. The researchers found that those taking the cherry concentrate were better able to sustain their attention. They also reported feeling more alert, with less mental fatigue. There did not appear to be any increase in blood flow to the brain, and the cherry consumers did not sleep longer or better than those on placebo. The investigators summarize, These data provide new information that bioactive foods rich in anthocyanins and other polyphenolic compounds can have an anti-fatiguing effect during periods of high cognitive demand, which are beneficial in daily tasks requiring vigilance. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.
0: Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Times have been tough. A worldwide pandemic, unprecedented storm damage, fires, floods, and economic challenges have created tremendous stress and anxiety. Mental health professionals have been inundated with requests for treatment. Are you feeling overwhelmed or depressed? Do you know someone who's having a really hard time? What can be done for anxiety and depression in these turbulent times?
0: Our guest today is one of the country's leading experts on mood and anxiety disorders. Dr. Andrew Nirenberg is the director of the Dalton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. In addition, he holds the Thomas P. Hackett, MD, Endowed Chair. Dr. Nirenberg is Associate Director of the Depression Clinical and Research Program. He's also Director of the Training and Education Program at the Massachusetts General Hospital Research Institute.
1: Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Andy Nirenberg.
2: Well, thanks so much for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Dr. Nirenberg, we've all been living through some pretty unusual times, and I'm wondering, as a clinician, how has the pandemic affected your patients' anxiety level, our ability to manage depression, and and other you know mental health challenges?
2: I think one of the things that we all have to acknowledge is that these are tremendously tumultuous and uncertain times, and that. One of the hard things is we don't even know when this thing is going to end, nor do we know what really dangers lurk out there, especially now with the Delta variant. And that that causes us to be constantly stressed. It's almost like having background radiation. And I think that's been difficult for everyone.
1: I really think so. And I'm wondering, how do we distinguish between a normal reaction to a stressful situation, because we're all experiencing stressful situations, some more than others. People who are being evicted, obviously, under a lot more stress than those who can stay put, keep their keep themselves at home. How do we distinguish between normal reactions and something like uh, depression that needs intervention?
2: So... When we're all stressed, and and look, life is pretty stressful as it is. We we didn't need a pandemic to make it any worse. But under conditions of stress, people get distressed, upset, uh, and they can feel pretty bad. But usually that's a temporary state and people can bounce back. When people have a tendency to develop a major depressive episode under conditions of stress, they don't really bounce back. And they have a persistent feeling of sadness, of being blue. And then it interferes with sleep, appetite, motivation, interest, concentration. And then people give themselves a really hard time where their inner voice is just very critical and difficult. People may also be either physically restless or slowed down and might even have suicidal thoughts.
0: Dr Nuremberg you've just described some of the what I would call classic symptoms of major depression but I just wonder are there some not so obvious symptoms where a person him or herself might not even be able to say oh, I'm really depressed or or perhaps family members or friends might not be able to recognize where you say oh that That's depression, but it's not obvious to us.
2: Yeah, people can get irritable. They can have a short fuse and not necessarily recognize that they feel sad and down. But, you know, they just get a short fuse and they're not the usual self. Uh, Certainly, having insomnia can fuel that. But it's sort of this persistence of feeling this malaise and feeling just not right, can't quite get things done, and people can find themselves spending too much time in activities that are more distracting than are constructive.
1: Dr. Nirenberg, as the director of the Doughton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation, we're trusting that you know quite a bit about bipolar disorder, but our listeners might not. Can you tell us how bipolar disorder? differs from depression Sure
2: uh, one of the things to recognize is that people who have bipolar disorder formerly known as manic depressive illness can have episodes of depression but also episodes of mania and these sort of mood shifts can be quite extreme and quite devastating what many people don't realize is that the major burden of bipolar disorder is not necessarily the mania, although those can be real crises. But in fact, the burden is really depression. And when people with bipolar are depressed, you can't tell them any different from people who have just depression.
0: We'll talk about the treatments in a moment, because they're quite different for bipolar disorder and major depression. But first, I'd like to get some sense of the various kinds of depression that that are out there. So we've already talked a bit about major depression. How does that differ from things like persistent depression or perinatal depression?
2: So, uh, you know, a major depressive episode is consistent with what I said earlier, where people have a persistently depressed mood. And some people will define that where it lasts for at least two weeks, plus some of the things that I talked about, problems with sleep, interest, motivation, feelings of guilt, uh, decreased or increased appetite, uh, either moving slower or being restless and having suicidal thoughts. So you put those all together and it's lasting for more than two weeks. It's considered a, a major depressive episode. What distinguishes that from an acute episode from people who have sort of chronic depression is when that depression just keeps on going. And when it's lasting more than a year or two, it's really chronic. The other thing is it can be recurrent, meaning that it can end and then come back.
0: We've heard from people who say, I've been depressed my whole life ever since I was a child, ever since I can remember. Have, have you run into patients like that?
2: Yeah, th- there's also a milder form of chronic depression called dysthymia. And, you know, these are the people who always see the negative, uh, uh, find it hard to find humor or joy in life, but they don't necessarily have the severity that you would see in a major depressive episode. And this can last for a very long time.
1: Let me ask you a little bit about some depressions that are specific to female people. And I'm going to ask about perinatal depression and also premenstrual dysphoric disorder.
2: Yeah, so there are two things that can happen is that With the hormonal shifts that can happen with pregnancy, that women can get depressed after they get pregnant, uh, before they give birth, and then after they give birth. It also turns out that it's fairly frequent that people with bipolar disorder, women with bipolar disorder, can have a postpartum depression that can occur anywhere within days to weeks after they give birth. Other women can also have depression that comes in the perimenopausal phase, also due to the hormonal shifts.
0: What about seasonal depression? We've heard about, you know, the winter blues or blahs.
2: Yeah, one of the more interesting things about that is that people can have the summer blahs. There are people who have seasonal depression and they get depressed not just in the winter, but they get depressed in the summer. And there are some people who are really very sensitive to the changes in light in the seasons. And uh, these are also people who can get depressed with jet lag. So there's something about the exposure to light. And there are some people who are just more sensitive to changes in light, either decreased or increased.
1: Dr. Nierenberg. What sorts of signs should parents be watching for in children and teenagers or even possibly young adults?
2: Yeah, it's it's really uh, quite amazing that about two decades ago, the field was unclear if young people can actually get depressed. But I think we now recognize that it can be a really serious problem, even in young kids' in adolescence and in young adults, and that the thing to watch out for is when the kids withdraw from the activities that would usually give them pleasure, they all of a sudden lose interest in things. They they just don't want to do anything. They're, they just want to stay in bed and sleep. And then it's really concerning if they start to give away some of their possessions that they value, and and then they could be at risk of, of suicidal thinking and suicidal behavior.
1: You're listening to Dr. Andy Nirenberg, Director of the Doughton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, where he holds the Thomas P. Hackett, M.D., endowed chair. In addition, he's currently the principal investigator for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, Picori Mood Network. The goal of Mood Network is to improve the lives of people with mood disorders by establishing a network of at least 20,000 patients across the country to conduct patient-centered comparative effectiveness research studies.
0: After the break, we will discuss treatments for depression.
1: Does talk therapy help to alleviate symptoms?
0: How do you find a qualified therapist?
1: When a person needs antidepressant medication, getting the right match between patient and medicine is important. How can the therapist help?
0: What are the side effects of antidepressant drugs?
1: There are a few medicines approved for other problems that may help ease depression. Which ones are they?
0: We'll also get the latest scoop on exercise, nutrition, light therapy, and sleep. How effective can changes in these factors be?
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high potency flavanol supplements. flavanols are among the most well studied plant based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research.
0: Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder providing 500 milligrams of coco flavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance.
1: Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of coco flavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory.
0: Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon.
0: And I'm Joe Graydon.
1: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products made in Germany. K-A-Y-A-Biotics.com.
0: Also by Cocovia, now offering its cardio health powder with 500 milligrams of coco flavanols. More information at cocovia.com.
1: Today we're talking about treatments for depression. What options are there beyond drugs like Prozac? There's a novel approach that involves a very old drug used to control cholesterol. How good is phenofibrate as an antidepressant?
0: We're talking with Dr. Andy Nirenberg. He is the director of the Dalton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Nierenberg is associate director of the Depression Clinical and Research Program at the Massachusetts General Hospital Research Institute.
1: Dr. Nierenberg, we're all wondering about treatment for depression. Does talk therapy work?
2: So there are several evidence-based forms of therapy as psychotherapy, behavioral therapy, that can really be extraordinarily effective and that uh, there are certainly a number of studies that try to look first at the effectiveness of those treatments and then compare those treatments also to medications. But the listeners should be aware at least of what some of these are called. One is called cognitive behavioral therapy. Another one is called behavioral activation therapy. And there's also mindfulness based cognitive therapy. And these things can work in the hands of people who are well trained.
1: How can someone who is experiencing these symptoms of depression find a qualified therapist?
2: That is a, a very tough question, and I'm not sure if I have a good answer to it. Certainly ask the primary care physician, other people who you know who might be connected to the system, who might know somebody. I get calls all the time from people I know, uh, and I try to facilitate connecting them to somebody else. But uh, I I think, sadly, the system is broken, and it's just not so easy to find someone. But, uh, you know, use anybody you know who might be connected.
0: Well, of course, nowadays, there's a lot of online therapy, and, and that might make it leave even a little bit more challenging to be able to assess, you know, are you going to have good rapport with this person, especially now that it's kind of through a computer screen?
2: Yeah, and, and it looks like the evidence is reasonable that the online therapists uh, may be more accessible. Uh, you do have to look at what they're credentials are and and look carefully at reviews and things like that. But that's certainly growing at an incredibly rapid pace. And that's one of the things that the pandemic accelerated was why should you assume that if you have to sit with somebody live, it's that much different than having some screen time with them? Now, I do think it is better to be live, but it may be good enough to do it on a screen.
0: Now, Dr. Nirenberg, I'd like to segue to medications because as a pharmacologist, I was trained to think that, wow, if we just modified that neurochemistry correctly, if we just tinker with the serotonin and the dopamine and the norepinephrine, bingo, we've cured depression. And clearly we have heard from people who say, wow, I got put on Prozac or some similar drug, and it just changed my life almost immediately. Well, it took six weeks, but the veil was lifted. And yet there are some large studies that suggest that for many people, antidepressants are just a little better than placebo. Can you help us understand how a therapist can help a patient find the right medication?
2: Well, Joe, you asked me several questions, and I'll try to answer them. The first thing that I I think the audience should recognize is that the rigorous research that was done that tries to test whether or not the antidepressants are better than placebo have shown that in aggregate, the antidepressants are better than placebo. Now, there are some studies that show that it's not any better than placebo, But in fact, no studies show that placebo is better than the antidepressants. And doing those studies is complicated. I've done those sort of studies. Uh, They're tricky to do. You have to find the right people to participate and so forth. But unequivocally, I think the field accepts that the antidepressants do work. Now, the second question of how do you match an antidepressant to a person so that they're taking the one that's best for them That's really complicated and very difficult to do. By and large, prescribers will try to make sure that the side effects are acceptable to people. Otherwise, it's not really clear that any antidepressant is that much better than any other.
1: Tell us a little bit about the different side effect profiles, if you would, please, so people have some idea what to expect.
2: So al- along the broad categories of antidepressants, the, the drugs that seem to have a mechanism of action that uh, affect serotonin mostly will have uh, a side effects of uh, sexual dysfunction, uh, which can be quite distressing. Some people can have weight gain, some sedation. Some of them can cause a little bit of more activation. Uh, There there are also these general side effects that all of them have of dizziness, headache, a little tiredness. But for most of the antidepressants, those types of side effects can be transient and can lift over time. The exception is the sexual side effects. And, you know, people should talk openly with their prescribers about that.
0: We. Quite commonly, hear from people who say, "Well, I was put on Prozac. I was put on Paxil. I got moved to Celexa. Then it was Cymbalta. Then it was Lexapro." And I, there, there wasn't a huge difference between them. And then other people will say, "Wow, when I got put on Cymbalta, it was like a miracle." How how do we find the right drug for the right person?
2: Yeah, and, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, it, it is a trial and error process, and uh, you can't know in advance what's going to work best. But to your point, even though the medications may share some mechanisms of action, they are distinct, and they do do distinctly different things. The other thing to understand is that, look, it, it's a miracle we wake up in the morning. It's a miracle our brains work. It's a miracle that I can be talking to you and you can understand the sounds that I make and I can understand the sounds that you make. Our brains are nothing short of a miracle. And we don't know exactly how the brain works. And we don't know exactly how the antidepressants work. But we do know it's a very complex dynamic system that can get dysregulated such that people develop a major depressive episode. So I think we have to be very humble about explaining how these works and under, uh, explaining how the antidepressants work and understanding the limits of our understanding.
1: Dr. Nirenberg, as we understand it, you've been looking at some novel treatments for depression. I'm wondering if you could tell us about one or two of those and maybe share a story of a patient.
2: Well, one of the things that we do in the Daunton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation is systematically try to see if we can repurpose medications. And there are medications, we have a lot of medications available in all of medicine, and some of them may have some mechanisms of action that are relevant for depression or even bipolar disorder. And, you know, none of the medications that we're currently studying are approved for the treatment of depression. But again, we're trying to systematically look at some of those. So, one of those medications that we're looking at is actually an anti triglyceride drug, you know, almost like an anti cholesterol drug, but for triglycerides. And it's based on. Oh, a theory about how our brains use energy and how these anti-triglyceride drugs uh, will affect that energy. And for people who I've treated who just didn't respond to anything conventional, I've had a few people do quite well on this class of medications called fibrates. And uh, they've been around forever and they're safe. And again, we're trying to systematically study it and uh, understand what it's really doing
0: to the brain. You know, it's interesting. I, I've just been reading about phenofibrate, which is one of those drugs that's been around forever, against COVID. And so we're sort of learning about repurposing old drugs for new uses.
2: That's right. And and, and phenofibrate has very interesting effects on a, a very complicated system called PPARs. And, and I won't go into it because it's really technical and it'll bore everybody, uh, make everybody bored. But it's a fascinating path to making more mitochondria. And mitochondria are the power cells of our our all of our cells. They're the little power plants that's in all of our cells. And phenofibrate really provokes our cells to make more of these mitochondria. And it was based somewhat on that theory of why uh, we're testing that uh, set of drugs.
1: Would you tell us a little bit, please, about uh, someone who did well on phenofibrate?
2: Yeah. So, so um, um, I, I had somebody who, who really had very severe recurrent depressions. And, and um, uh, what I could tell you is that really nothing worked. Uh, And uh, after we talked about it and and this person tried uh, phenofibrate, uh, they were remarkably better within about six weeks. And um, it's a much more complicated story than that, but it was the first indication that it, you know, maybe something is there. And that's the sort of stuff that we like to study. And that's the sort of clues that we like to start to get. Uh, there are now very sophisticated biological models that we're starting to look at uh, to see if we can get clues from the biological models about repurposing. And and that'll be a whole whole long endeavor to, to uh, uh, embark on. It'll be an interesting journey.
0: I would look, love to get your perspective on two really old drugs, uh, lithium and MAO inhibitors, and in particular, lithium in low doses. But first... Back to novel depression treatments, I'm just wondering, you know, do your colleagues also prescribe things like exercise and nutrition, uh, light therapy, sleep therapy, meditation? We've heard about something called forest bathing, peer counseling. What about all these other uh, approaches?
2: So uh, it's interesting that, that one of the things you mentioned is exercise because exercise hits the same pathways as phenofibrate. And fundamentally, through phenofibrate, through exercise, it causes our bodies to produce brain fertilizer. Uh, it's called brain derived neurotrophic factor. And brain derived neurotrophic factor really makes our brain cells healthy and robust and look like really healthy trees. And so the more of that you have, the probably the better off you are. And it's also important to know that stress will decrease the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So anything that will help people feel less stressed, whether that's forest bathing, meditation, exercise... These things can be extraordinarily helpful for people. And th- there's at least some evidence that can help with depression.
0: And what about things like nutrition and supplements and light therapy, especially in the winter?
2: So, for those people with seasonal affective disorder, light therapy can really make a big difference. There's another new form of light therapy called near-infrared radiation, and uh, that's really interesting because that that wavelength of light will pass right through the skull. You don't even have, have to expose people to that light wavelength in their eyes. It'll go right through, and th- there are several uh, groups that are looking at that form of light. Uh, so yeah, th- those are reasonable uh, approaches to try to help people.
0: Dr. Nuremberg, what happens when someone exhausts all the standard options? You've prescribed a variety of antidepressants, nothing, no benefit. Maybe you've even tried the MAO inhibitors and they didn't work or lithium. And maybe you've encouraged them to do a lot of the, you know, therapy sessions and maybe even exercise and again, they're still in a deep, dark hole. When do, when do you consider other possibilities, perhaps things like ketamine or psilocybin?
2: Well, it, I must say, Joe, that, that before I would consider those things, I would consider electroconvulsive therapy or a magnetic therapy called repetitive transcranial magnetic therapy. RTMS. Um, Electroconvulsive therapy or ECT is still around because it works and it's safe. And it's been around since the 1940s. And even though people are frightened of it and you have one flu over the cuckoo's nest and all of that, it is a modern, extraordinary treatment that frequently can help safely when other things don't work. Uh, The other form of providing energy to the brain to help people feel better is this magnetic treatment, repetitive transcranial magnetic uh, therapy, or RTMS. And that is FDA approved. And there are people who are now really quite skilled at providing that. And there are some newer forms of it where people can get better much quicker. I would do that before I would go to ketamine or psilocybin.
0: Would you ever consider those what we'll call kind of on the far edge of therapy, that is to say uh, pharmacotherapy, uh, when might you contemplate recommending a patient consider ketamine or even a psychedelic?
2: Well, there there are a couple of things to realize, Joe. One is that ketamine has been studied since uh, the late 90s. So it's not like it's this brand new treatment. And it's a reasonable thing to do if somebody doesn't want to get ECT, is afraid of it, or there's some contraindication to getting either the electroconvulsive therapy or the magnetic treatment. Uh, And then you could see. But there's... You know, the problem with ketamine is once it works, what do you do? Do you just keep on giving the ketamine and and, uh, indefinitely? Or, you know, is that something that's reasonable or not? It's not entirely clear. The psilocybin, I think, is still experimental and that we still don't know the full benefits and risks. And I think we need really good studies to understand that better.
0: One of the things that worries us these days is that if a patient ends up in an emergency department really depressed and even possibly suicidal, that we often don't have facilities for them. We we hear stories about patients getting parked in hallways, not just for hours, but sometimes for days. What is the current situation in this country as far as you know, really serious mental illness emergencies.
2: Yeah, it's a real tragedy that we just don't have enough resources for all of the people who need help. And and that when when people have to stay for days in an emergency room, that's just yet another indication of how bad the system is broken. I don't have good answers of how to fix that. I think we also have a shortage of psychiatrists, a shortage of psychiatric nurse practitioners and a shortage of therapists. And we just haven't made the investment that we need to make uh, to try to make sure we can take care of all these people. Uh, So how we move forward, I I, I just don't know. But I think first recognizing that as a problem is the first step.
0: One of the things that I always find challenging is when there is a, a terrible tragedy. Uh, you know, somebody does some very violent things or some other, you know, really bad situation occurs. We, we hear about, oh, it, it's a mental health problem. And everybody nods and agrees. And, oh, yes, yes, we, we have to devote more resources to mental health. And then nothing happens.
2: yeah, that's a really complicated issue, because violence uh it is not necessarily anything psychiatric, and that we have to be very careful not to confuse illness with evil, people doing bad things for bad reasons. It's easy to say that they must, be, they must have some psychiatric disorder, but it's just not true. People have crimes of passion and uh, develop all sorts of beliefs that might lead them to, uh, to be violent. Sometimes there's an intersection between the two. But look, people with serious mental illness are more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators of it. So so I think it's all too easy to dismiss these tragedies as it's just psychiatric and then you know nothing's done. But I, I think that's a societal, very different issue.
0: And my last question is Dr. Nuremberg, if we were to put you in charge of the National Institute of Mental Health or whatever it's called, What changes would you like to see at a policy and governmental level?
2: I think, first of all, there is a very big problem of underinvestment in psychiatric research. So I think the, the first thing would be to be able to get more resources to do both the fundamental research into basic science so we can understand more. And then I would invest a lot more in practical clinical research. Uh, the current National Institute of Mental Health has decided not to fund a lot of clinical research and to focus mostly on basic. And, and I think that we have to use all the tools we can to try to tackle this really very big problem.
1: Dr. Nierenberg, I'm wondering if you could conclude our conversation today with helping us clarify what's the difference between sadness, which I think is a normal reaction to loss, and depression, which may not be normal.
2: So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute, but I also want to ask answer Joe's question about lithium from before. Oh, uh, yes, please. Because lithium is the simplest medication in all of medicine. It's a simple ion. And it does unbelievably complicated things. But the main thing to take home is that it protects neurons and that it is still one of the best treatments that we have for bipolar disorder. It is less clear if it works for people who have just depression and not bipolar disorder. In terms of your other question of what's the difference between sadness and depression, it's a little unfortunate that we use those words in our language to distinguish between an emotional state and an illness state. And, you know, sadness is when you have lost something that is meaningful to you uh, and that it doesn't matter whether it's a person, it's a job, it can blend into grief and all sorts of things like that. But sadness is part of being human. It's part of the human experience of being attached to other people, of caring and of loving, and when those things end. Depression is a syndrome. And it's a syndrome that is made up of the things that I mentioned earlier when I mentioned those lists of things that people can have. And it causes dysfunction and tremendous distress uh, so so in a nutshell, that's really the difference between sadness and depression.
1: Dr. Andrew Nirenberg, thank you very much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today.
2: Terry and Joe, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, discuss this with you and uh, delighted to be here.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Andy Nirenberg, Director of the Doughton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, where he holds the Thomas P. Hackett MD Endowed Chair. Dr. Nirenberg is Associate Director of the Depression Clinical and Research Program at MGH Research Institute.
0: After the break, we'll turn to one of Dr. Nuremberg's colleagues, Dr. Jerry Rosenbaum.
1: When people don't respond well to conventional therapies, what other alternatives do they have?
0: Ketamine is not an antidepressant, but S-ketamine is. What are the differences?
1: Does it matter if a patient gets the drug as a nasal spray, intravenous injection, or in a pill?
0: Also, do psychedelics change the landscape of mental health care?
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Coco Via, now offering its cardio health powder with 500 milligrams of cocoa flavanols. More information at cocovia.com.
0: And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform. More information at gaiaherbs.com.
1: Most mental health professionals rely on conventional antidepressants to ease symptoms of depressive disorders. These drugs don't work for everyone, though. What other options are there for treating major depression when the usual medications aren't working well enough?
0: Our guest is Dr. Jerry Rosenbaum, psychiatrist and chief emeritus at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's director of the Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress Disorders and of the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Rosenbaum is also the Stanley Cobb Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School.
1: Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Jerry Rosenbaum.
0: Well, it's nice to be here.
1: Thank you for
3: having me, Terry.
0: Dr. Rosenbaum, you are one of the country's most distinguished psychiatrists. You've been treating depression for decades. When people don't respond well to conventional treatments, what other options are there?
3: Well, it's an important question, and it's not one that can be answered briefly, but I will try. In addition to traditional antidepressants, the ones we've all heard about, the older ones like tricyclics and MAO inhibitors, the newer ones like uh, SSRIs and SNRIs, psychiatrists, particularly psychopharmacologists, have learned what other physicians have learned who treat important other conditions, whether it's diabetes or hypertension. And that is monotherapy with an effective agent is often insufficient for most people, and that uh, a skilled psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist has to be persistent, has to keep trying to find the combinations of treatments that will be uniquely effective for this individual. You have to start with first with the understanding that uh, the conditions we treat are extraordinarily heterogeneous. We know this from the phenotypes, the symptoms that people have vary tremendously. You know, they started early in life or late in life. They have certain symptoms and not others. So the the presentation of all these conditions, even with the same name like depression, is very varied. And we also know from genetic research and neuroimaging research that there's heterogeneity in the brain networks that underpin these conditions. And the genetic variation is, is enormous. The genetic risk profile for these conditions varies tremendously. There are hundreds, if not thousands of genes that influence the risk. So it's no surprise that people are different. And as a result, some people do very well in treatment, some people do modestly well, and some people don't do well at all. But there are so many different options now beyond just the antidepressants that you know about that allow someone to keep pursuing new variations in treatment and new combinations that if you do this, you find a substantial number of what people who are initially non-responsive will eventually respond. But it's a, it's a large effort, and we lack what other uh, medical specialties have more of, which is the ability to predict which treatment will work for which patient. So unfortunately, it becomes a journey of trial and error. And so you think about combinations of treatments. Sometimes you're talking about combinations of pharmacology with certain types of psychotherapy. Sometimes it's variations of combinations of different uh, psychiatric medications that you put together, like more than one antidepressant or an antidepressant and some other medication like a dopamine agonist. Or sometimes we use device-based treatments uh, like TMS or ECT, or the so-called newer treatments, or the rapids, like ketamine is an example. um, Nutraceuticals and complementary and alternative medicines have a role to play for many patients. Uh, When they're added in, some people get better. And then there's an array of behavioral or resilience-building strategies that augment antidepressant treatment as well, things like Exercise is so critical. If you can get people to do that, you can boost their responsiveness. Meditation, walks in nature, uh, well-being therapy, and so forth and so on. So there's so many things that one can do with a patient Before that I, I, I used to say when I was a younger psychiatrist that a good psychopharmacologist can keep treating a patient as long as the longest psychoanalytical treatment ever lasted, uh, and in many cases come up with something in the end that, that does work. So um, yeah, that's I, I, I promised you a shorter answer, and I apparently lied, but that's sort of the summary.
1: Well, we would like to talk about some of those things. And we were hoping to talk to you about ketamine, partly because not too long ago, just a couple years ago, the FDA approved a brand new antidepressant called S-ketamine that works differently from Prozac and Paxil and the other most commonly used antidepressants. Can you tell us about ketamine and esketamine, please?
3: Sure. So um, the interest in ketamine as a potential antidepressant goes back some years. And uh, investigators at the National Institute of Mental Health and at Yale, uh, were studying it for a long time. Uh, ketamine uh, is a, uh, a drug that's uh, also used for pain as an anesthetic. Um, has been diverted in some populations as a a party drug because of its dissociative effects. But ketamine, the molecule, has been known to have uh, efficacy for depression for some time. That's different than whether the FDA approves it or not. Since ketamine was available as a drug for other indications, doctors could prescribe it. You know, they didn't have to be approved for it. So, for example, at our center, we had a ketamine Clinic for several years um, using the generic ketamine that's on the market. It's a you know you can get a vial of it for you know about ten dollars, so it's a very inexpensive treatment compared to say a, a new branded treatment like Spravato. And uh, what was interesting about the studies of ketamine is that it not only worked well in many patients for whom no other treatment had been successful, but it seemed to be particularly good at treating those with the most. Uh, what we used to, we think of the most challenging forms of depression, um, not just treatment resistant, but depression with lots of anxiety or depression with suicidal thinking. And we saw that it was unique because it also had unique effects on suicidality. In some cases, the depression lagged in response, didn't respond, but the suicidality did. So the next question was, was it doing something unique? And um, the more we look at it, we see that uh, ketamine is working on different neurotransmitters than the traditional antidepressants, more focused on um, the uh, function of a neurotransmitter called glutamate, that it's associated, as is true with other antidepressants, but much more rapidly and profoundly with uh, changes in uh, neuroplasticity. You see uh, neurons uh, uh, starting to form new connections and and budding um, dendrites and so forth. The analogy people like to use is uh, looking at your tree branches in springtime with the buds and the and the growth as opposed to in wintertime where things seem sort of shrunken and shriveled and, and empty of connections, ketamine seems to do that. So ketamine was very promising that there are new places to look for antidepressants, that there's a potential to treat depression for some patients rapidly, as opposed to the many weeks that sometimes is required for traditional treatments. Um, and so that inspired a, a lot of uh, activity looking for novel and, and rapid Treatments. Uh, Ketamine exists in nature as a chemical called a racemic. It has two forms in the mixture: a right-handed and left-handed molecule. And so, it's as you might expect. uh, Commercial entities uh, tried to figure out how to make money off it, even though ketamine is a a very inexpensive agent. So they separated the uh, the the mixture into uh, S and, and R ketamine. And there's a company developing R ketamine, and a company that has already had approval for S-ketamine in the form of an uh, intranasal uh, uh, medication called Spravato. So various forms of ketamine uh, are are, uh, uh, available or will be available. Uh, There are practitioners who give it by infusion, which seems to be the most reliable and effective, but there are others who give it in the form of a lozenge or an injection. And uh, the good news is it adds another tool to the toolkit to help some people we haven't been able to help.
0: I've always wondered why it's perceived as only a injection or intravenous medication. Obviously, that is how it got a start in life as an anesthetic. But Special K, as it's been known in the club drug world, uh, does seem to work orally. And you mentioned uh, lozenges. And I know there are some compounding pharmacies that put it together in various formulations as well. Does it have any antidepressant activity as an oral formulation
3: uh yes i mean the the issue with uh oral versus uh, uh intravenous is really one of uh dosing and and uh, bioavailability and reliability of dose so at our ketamine center we have uh had patients um Use uh, intranasal formulations compounded as as I think you mentioned, uh, you know buy uh, available generic ketamine, take it to a compounding pharmacy, create a nebulizer, uh, which makes it much more convenient than coming in several times a week to an infusion center. The problem is, it doesn't always. It's not as reliable, and we think that has something to do with absorption and bioavailability and dosing. That's that's much uh, more um, reliable with uh, intravenous. But yes, it can work uh, by uh, any uh, means of administration. It's just the issue of consistency of dose, adequacy of dose, and bioavailability that varies depending on how it's administered.
1: Dr. Rosenbaum, we've noted that you are director of the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And we'd like to ask you about psychedelics. How do they change the landscape of mental health care?
3: Well, uh, as you likely know, I mean, there's tremendous enthusiasm and some would even say a bubble uh, around uh, uh, psychedelics as a new generation of therapeutics for psychiatric disorders also lots of enthusiasm for psychedelics for use for other purposes you know for spiritual journeys and personal growth and so forth but um there have been you know a use of these substances for thousands of years as you likely know and um you know indigenous population tribes spiritual uses some feel that they've been used in civilization much longer than we know so it um it, there has been uh oh, i don't know maybe 10 million people have 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 used them for personal use and a lot of the testimonials attest to major changes in well-being and and freedom from long-standing depression or anxiety the ending of addiction the loss of fear of dying in those with terminal illness profound changes in how one feels in the world how one relates to oneself and uh the reports are remarkable, and it's led to tremendous enthusiasm that drugs like psychedelics or the available psychedelics may lead us um, into a, a generation of new therapeutics for a variety of psychiatric disorders. And um, there are, I don't probably hundreds of companies that have moved into this space to find a niche, whether it's taking an available psychedelic and 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 changing in a way that allows a company to have their own intellectual property for it. Or, and uh, there's certainly far more psychedelic therapeutics being developed than there's space in our shelves, I can tell you that. And uh, right now, there are a couple of leaders. There, there are um, uh, companies that are uh, looking at synthetic psilocybin as a, a remedy for treatment-resistant depression. There was an important study with MDMA in uh, PTSD that was published in an important journal, Nature Medicine, that showed efficacy for treating PTSD in both cases when combined with a certain kind of psychotherapy that helps patients use the experience to heal themselves, the so-called psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So it's likely that in a few years, we will have some psychedelics that are at least approvable by the FDA. And whether they'll be transformative and broadly effective across large populations, is hard to know. Right now, there's so much enthusiasm that it's, um, it's hard to know what to make of the testimonials. The studies that ha- are in the literature are mostly small and done by, uh, led by investigators who are quite enthusiastic and subjects who are similarly very eager to participate. So um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm an old psychopharmacologist, and I can tell you there have been a lot of treatments that worked really well until I studied them. I think that I, I, I am a, uh, optimistic that these, uh, as we mentioned with ketamine, will bring new tools um, to help people we haven't been able to help. I'm I'm really quite sure of that. Our center is not about trying to find out, you know, does it work for this condition or that condition? Um, or to try to decriminalize or to be involved in policy. Our center is very much focused on the mystery of what they're doing in the brain. And that's why it's called the Center for the Neuroscience Psychedelics. We're trying to understand what happens from the, you know, the molecular to the network level in the brain. We have the tools now to be able to do that. And, you know, what genes are turned on? Uh, uh, what's the pathway? What's the what's the neurochemical pathway that uh, leads to these apparent uh, network changes? And what are they? We'd like to know whether, you know, um, we can enhance that, uh, whether there are ways to achieve the same result without the burden of old Schedule One psychedelics. Um, you know, my, it might lead us to new therapeutics, might lead us to, you know, find shortcuts that use devices. So we're in a very early exp- explorational stage. We've uh, mostly relying on philanthropic support to launch our studies, we've had some studies, some human studies, uh, some studies that are in labs using uh, brains in a dish, so-called organoids, to look at these things. So it's it's a it's more of a basic science or a translational science effort, and we're not really quite so engaged with all the uh, frenzy to uh, you know uh, come to market with uh, new therapeutics. But we're we're we watch that story closely, and as a clinician, I'm hopeful that uh, this will bring relief to people. I, I, ever since we started this center, um, very poignantly, every day I get five to ten appeals from people who who say they've just run out of options and and have lost hope and feel that we're their last hope. and it's very hard because we're not a, we're not a treatment center at this point. we're just a neuroscience center. but perhaps someday there will be
0: something for these people. Dr Rosenbaum, how do we get past the stigma of the 60s? You mentioned there's a lot of enthusiasm right now for psychedelics in the treatment of hard-to-treat mental illnesses like depression, but there are a lot of old clinicians who go, "Oh, psychedelics, Timothy Leary, I'm not I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole." So how do we find that uh, that balance? I think the um... You know the legacy of the uh
3: sixties is slowly being undone. I think there for those who are paying attention uh there are uh now uh reports documentations of what was really going on politically that led to the shutting down of all uh even legitimate research in this space that it was in in large measure not entirely i mean there were abuses and uh excesses in that period for sure. But it was a deliberate approach by the Nixon administration to uh, try to shut down the Vietnam protests. They they knew they couldn't stop people because of their First Amendment rights, but they knew they could get them on their drugs. So um, by scheduling these drugs as Schedule One and, and uh, arresting people for their possession, they they felt they had a, uh, a an effective uh, weapon to use against uh, the protests. Um, so the more people sort of realize that, I mean, I think that undoes some of the stigma. But it is true. It still exists. I mean, in my own center, you know, I uh, when or in my own institution, when we founded this center, I mean, people were intrigued uh, and not opposed, uh, interested, <clears throat> but curious. I mean, they, they say, well, really, psychedelics, I thought they did this or that. It sort of mirrors my own journey in that, uh, you know, I was a stodgy old psychopharmacologist with all the... U- usual uh, uh, biases and beliefs that come from, uh, you know, relying on one's experience. And I just happened to have the good fortune of a very close friend who's an influencer in this uh, uh, movement, is well connected in this in this world, which I think I refer to as a, as potentially a bubble. And without my knowing it, he was sort of gradually trying to lead me to a new understanding. I think he sort of saw me as a potential tool, given my position at Mass General and, you know, in a highly regarded uh, institution and department. And he would ask me questions about psychedelics as if I was an expert and I would, you know, for better or worse, uh, pretend to be one. And and I slow and, and slowly I was able to see how much I didn't know, how much work had been done, how much um, how much evidence there was. I got to meet some of the people who were pioneering in, in developing new evidence like Robin Carhart harris at uh, Imperial College London and uh, see some of the neuroimaging data that were emerging. And it just started raising questions in my mind that, you know, maybe uh, there's an opportunity here. And uh, I became, I, 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 you know, I remain as a scientist, you have to remain a skeptic, but uh, I also added some optimism to that. And, um, you know, treatment resistant conditions and and people who lose benefit and people who aren't helped. They're a relatively small percentage of the people we care for, but given the size of the population who suffers these conditions, it's a large number. So it's relatively, you know, if it's 10% of people with, you know, major depression or, or uh, chronic anxiety who get no relief from our remedies, that's a large number g- given the millions and millions of people who suffer. So, um, I, uh, I So I had that. I was I was starting to become more open to the idea that there's something there, that there's a story that is unfinished and understanding what these agents do in the brain. In parallel, I was um, focused on a research project with a colleague, a junior colleague at my institution named Sharman Ghaznavi, and we were studying rumination. Uh, because so many patients with, with depression and anxiety and o c d and addiction and eating disorders, so much of the suffering uh that they have with a psychiatric disorder is in their heads in the form of stuck thinking dwelling on things that are either disparaging or regretful, and they can't they can't get out of it they 're in a loop on it and that that's some that 's a phenomenon called rumination, so we were trying to figure out how to study and treat rumination because we felt that that was not that was that was Um, an aspect of psychiatric suffering that we did not have good therapeutics for. And um, when I first saw some of the neuroimaging data from people on psilocybin, it suggested to me that that agent might be good for people who ruminate just because of some of the changes in networks that were seen acutely when people are on psilocybin. So I just simply reached out to try to source psilocybin from a company called Compass Pathway, which makes synthetic psilocybin to see if I could get some for studies of people who ruminate. And in my conversation with one of the co-founders of the company, a woman named Katya Malaskaya, she uh, engaged me in a conversation to think about something bigger. I mean, she knew that, you know, Mass General is the nation's largest biomedical research institute attached to a care facility, i.e. hospital-based biomedical research institute with over a billion dollars of funded research, you know, world-leading uh, centers in neuroimaging and, uh, in neuroscience. And, uh, And wondered whether we might take on the challenge of uh, studying psychedelics. And so with her inspiration and the uh, focus on rumination to start with, uh, we just, uh, you know, if you remember the old Mel Brooks routine of the 2000 year old man and the psychiatrist Buck Murchison put his hand on a rock and said, I am a psychiatrist. I just put my hand on a rock and said, we have a Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics. And uh, we we raised a little under $10 million so far for various aspects of it, including training programs and basic science and some human studies. And obviously we're looking to
0: make it much larger and much more important. Dr. Rosenbaum, you mentioned rumination. And I'm wondering if psychedelics like psilocybin are affecting the way people see the world, interact with the world, how they may change their relationship to rumination, yeah. and how much is neurochemistry? I think for a long time, your colleagues, psychopharmacologists, thought, oh, if we just tinker with the chemistry, we can fix everything. But what about the thinking piece? Yeah.
3: So um... – there are a lot of intriguing things that happen um, with psychedelics. One is, uh, you know, I mentioned neuroplasticity before, but some people, you know, come out of a session changed. And that, uh, hap- that's a state change that happens rapidly that is difficult to explain uh, by, uh, you know, enhanced learning, which is in some ways what neuroplasticity is. It, you know, so there is a rapid change in state. Now, you referred to the fact that people have these profound experiences, and and although these profound experiences may vary depending on the substance one is using, whether they're more entheogenic or spiritual or empathogenic or connective to other people or self, um, they have profound experiences. But there, there are actually companies now trying to see whether they can develop psychedelics that lack the... The journey that lack the spiritual experience, lack the hallucinatory experience, if you will, and whether they can be therapeutic without that. So it's still an open question whether um, the spiritual experience is essential to the change or whether it's a you know an epiphenomenon. My sense is it's probably both. I think profound experiences change the brain, and I think these drugs probably also have some primary effect that can bypass that. That spiritual effect to still do something, whether you know having both t- together or, or having the spiritual effect in addition to whatever the basic chemical effect. I'm guessing that may make it more uh, impactful and enduring. It, you know, intense emotional experience also does um, enhance uh, uh, long-term potentiation and, and and sustained learning. So it, it's an open question about. You know, whether it's the spiritual experience that leads to the change, whether it's an epiphenomenon or whether it's simply just synergistic.
1: Dr. Rosenbaum, I'm wondering if you could briefly summarize for us the pros and cons of using a compound like ketamine or like some of the psychedelics for treating depression.
3: Well, if I were to uh, um, reflect some of what my uh, uh, colleagues who are outside of the bubble have said, uh, I mean, there's still there still are people who are, you know, neuroscientists uh, who are some of whom have even participated in the past in the early studies who issue a much more cautionary signal about the enthusiasm about psychedelics and concern about if they're approved, will that um, justify broader freer use, particularly if if associated with a period of, you know, decriminalization. I I am absolutely for decriminalization. I don't think people should be, you know, criminalized for using these substances for personal use at all. But the concern of colleagues is that there will be um, unforeseen consequences the way um, they have emerged with uh, enthusiasm about the use of other substances, whether it was our enthusiasm about treating pain with opiates or um, that there are probably vulnerable populations. There are ways to use these drugs, although they're not addictive in the sense we think of addiction that some people may be so enamored of the experience that it uh, may distract them from, you know, um, ordinary living. But I'm I'm less concerned about that. But there are people who feel that widespread availability and uh, medicalization and approval will lead to use in populations that we haven't well studied. For example, if you look at the study that was done at um, Imperial College comparing psilocybin to Lexapro, S-italopram, um, there were 60 subjects in the study, but they screened a 1,000 to get those 60 or actually 59 subjects. So there are a lot of people that we have not been studying who have conditions of, that might raise some concern like psychotic disorders, Bipolar, schizophrenia, others where the intense experience may, you know, do harm. The other thing about neuroplasticity is that it opens a window for change, but it doesn't say that change always has to be positive. So, again, set and setting and use of these medications is considered important to make sure the experience is a positive or therapeutic one and not a negative one. So, you know, there's just things one doesn't know about what would happen if there were widespread and un regulated or at least use in people who are not prepared for the use and are not supported in the use in the way it's being done in the therapeutic context.
0: Dr. Rosenbaum, what about training future psychiatrists? Are residency programs around the country starting to consider psychedelics and how will those clinicians be trained?
3: So, um, there are there are a couple um issues here one is um for to be a therapist in psychedelic assisted therapy there are training programs that certify people to do that uh they don't aren't necessarily psychiatrists they can be master's level or other therapists so uh, to participate in the trials now and to be a therapist you have to go through pretty extensive training that can take weeks of you know both class work and observational work in my own residency program, uh, we have a class of sixteen that come in every year. Uh at least four of this year's first year class uh came and immediately contacted me and said, I want to, you know, connect to this psychedelic work. I came here because there's a psychedelic center. So that is that is happening. Their psychiatrists are getting interested. The young people particularly are excited about the potential for psychedelics and psychotherapy. So while I think most programs don't have a formal training in it, I think increasingly it's being included in the didactic curriculum. Um, you know, I've participated in a number of uh, seminars in our own program. So so that is happening. The residents are excited about it. Um, uh, I think some are coming into psychiatry now because of this. So um, I think it will be a, a growing part. We have a our first uh, national teaching program, we have a, something in Mass General called the Mass General Psychiatry Academy that does has like 40 or 50,000 members and does, you know, uh, online and live and tuition based courses uh, for many things in psychiatry. And we're having our first two day conference on psychiatric disorders and psychedelics uh, this fall. And that's designed to reach out to colleagues and give them sort of a primer on what's happening and what they might expect in the future with respect to psychedelics and psychiatric disorders.
0: Dr. Rosenbaum, there are a couple of really old therapies that have kind of gone by the wayside, and I'm just wondering if there's any place for monoamine oxidase inhibitors or low-dose lithium for the treatment of depression.
3: (laughs) Well, you're talking to a fan of both. So, um, you know, one of the treatments that I was excited about was, you know, Claude de Montigny and Pierre Blier back in the the 70s, I guess, published on low dose lithium as an augmentation strategy, and uh, and a small study. And I was using it and found it's really effective. Uh, and then we did a study, and it it uh, it didn't beat placebo. But I think it's the, low dose lithium still has a role to play and can be an important uh, contribution to to antidepressant treatment. So, so for sure, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, if you know you were to ask me what are the most reliably effective antidepressants that have ever been uh, available, I'd say the MAOIs. I mean, they were our go to for treatment resistant depression, and uh, they sort of fallen to the wayside because of you know the the burden of being on them in terms of dietary caution about uh, uh, foods uh, or other substances containing tyramine. Some you know some side effect challenges uh, that would emerge uh, often uh, involving uh, sleep or other funny symptoms, but they've really dropped uh, off the uh, uh, the standard pharmacopoeia. But the old timers like myself still think of them as you know you're not treatment resistant if you haven't failed an MAOI because um, they seem to do something more than the, than other antidepressants, and probably it has to do with uh, Dopaminergic transmission, or uh, other uh, m- a minor monoaminergic chemicals that are, that they um, uh, affect, that other antidepressants does. So I, I would think MAOIs are, you know, are, are still uh, often helpful when nothing else works, but they're they're very uh, limited in their use these days.
1: Dr. Jerry Rosenbaum, thank you very much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Gerald F. Rosenbaum. He is psychiatrist-in-chief emeritus, director of the Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress Disorders, and director of the Center for Neuroscience of Psychedelics at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Rosenbaum is the Stanley Cobb Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. His career has focused on mood and anxiety disorders, with a special emphasis on pharmacotherapy of those conditions.
0: Earlier in the show, we spoke with Dr. Andy Nirenberg. He's the director of the Dalton Family Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School.
1: Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski Engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music.
0: This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy.
1: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizana, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome, online at verisana.com.
0: And by Coco Cocovia the maker of high-potency flavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
1: And by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from certified organic ingredients. kaya
0: You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. The podcast contains information on electroconvulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation. There's more data on a couple of older drugs that deserve another look, monoamine oxidase inhibitors and low-dose lithium. Also, Dr. Rosenbaum offers some reflections on psychedelics. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. You might want to share it with a friend or family member.
1: If you'd like to make a comment on this show, you can look for the post on our website, peoplespharmacy.com. It's show number 1,271.
0: At our website, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week.